welcome to another episode of Startups, Sparks, and Serendipity. <laughs> this is Mike, and we tried an intro music for the first time because our we had to change our setup, and I'm now recording via Zencaster, and they have this great option of playing intro music, and I just used it. <laughs> uh, how did you like it, Max? You are an audio engineer, Mike, I have to admit. It sounded beautiful. I, I would love to be one, but sadly, not my expertise. That's what we have Parker for, who is mixing our episodes. Hope that he's doing a good job and that all of you can understand us very clearly. And I think he's doing a good job, uh, at least from what I hear usually. Absolutely agree. And uh, we are we need to come up with more fancy audio intros, but I think uh, you made a good start. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I have to ask one or two of my friends who are music producers if they can produce a quick jingle for us. Let's see. Okay, so today we have a couple of interesting topics and I would just dive into the first one right now. There is a document that was circulated around in the German startup scene for quite a bit. And it's the German Startup Monitor for all the international listeners. It's basically a glimpse into the German startup ecosystem. We won't make it too long so that it's still relevant for people from all different countries. But we think there are some very interesting learnings in there. And some of them can also be applied outside of Germany. And the Startup Monitor was published by uh, PwC in cooperation with the Startup Association in Germany and then Netstart. I don't know who Netstart is, but they're also on the cover page. So I'll, I'll just mention them. And yeah, there's some interesting findings in it. Before we dive in, a couple of caveats. One, it's not a scientific study. So they don't say that it's representative like fully, but it's a fairly holistic survey of different people who just answered questions. The other caveat is that startup is a bit muddy. A definition of setup is a bit muddy, in my opinion, because they count some companies I personally wouldn't count necessarily as startups. But I, I think there's still some very, very interesting learnings in there. And I might just start with a couple of uh, demographic facts, and then maybe we, we can go into a couple of the other learnings that we can get from there. So the most interesting thing that I read early on was that the average age of the founder who answered the survey was 36, which was a bit older than I would have expected. I would have guessed like maybe like beginning of 30, like 30, 31. But then also, if you look at it statistically, it makes sense, right? Because people can still found companies when they're 60. But yeah, most most people when they are 10 or something don't really build companies. Uh, so uh, the median would actually be interesting. But yeah, would you, would you have expected 36 or would, what would have been your guess? No, I actually would have thought it's uh, in the early 30s, maybe 29, between 29 and 31. Because I also thought of maybe also from my own just uh, naive perspective of seeing lots of young people coming into the ecosystem, building companies right after university. And maybe that was just a perception that I had that the average must be lower. But uh, I guess also people are, what I've also realized over the last kind of months is that people when working in existing companies, they, they identify uh, new problems either in their own company that they want to solve or at their customers, uh, um, in, in the customer's environment where 
they identify certain problems that their company that they're working for, uh, the problem is not related to the actual technology or to the product that the company is building. So I have the feeling that that's how people also realize that certain problems should be solved, but they can't solve it in the existing company. So they kind of do their own stuff. So I think that's something that, that I have observed also talking to existing founders in the last months again, that are might, that might be a bit older and also. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, then two other demographic factors based on this survey. Uh, 16% of the founders that answered the survey are female. And then a bit over 20% are either foreigners or their parents weren't born in Germany. I think that's how they uh, defined it. So that's very interesting. And maybe a couple of other interesting points that we want to talk about is the biggest challenges. The people who answer the survey were mentioning a bit about the financing and what they prefer and what they don't prefer. And before before I give it to you for the challenges, I think you looked at that a bit deeper. One interesting fact that I saw is that almost half of the founders, I think something like 47 something percent, were serial founders. So they didn't found their first company, but at least their second one which I think is a very interesting fact. Do you see that as uh, more or less a good reflection of the startup ecosystem in Germany? Or do you think that's, that means that they have not kind of continuously built uh, uh, successful companies? Or what, what does it mean to you personally when looking at the, the, the fact? Oh, I, I don't know if I can directly evaluate it or judge it. I think it's it was just interesting to me. Mm. I think one of the big advantages that you have as a second-time founder is that you don't repeat many of the mistakes you do as a first-time founder, right? Mm. And then it also depends a bit on the actual founding experience, right? And the, the actual probability of founding a, comp- a startup and then having it succeed and become a very valuable company is statistically very small so taking a second or a third try is very very reasonable in my opinion Mm -hmm. so i think it's good that many people just say hey we tried again no matter how successful the first journey may Mm. may have been yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it opens new doors also knowing certain people that you can integrate into your team etc it makes a lot of things faster which also i mean fits very much to the challenges of startups that that the, the monitor identified uh, by by interviewing these people and the big four um, and I would be interested also knowing what you think about them also from your experience but the big four were um, accelerating growth uh, more or less or respectively accelerating sales um, and winning customers um, the second one was more about product development um, and and being fast enough uh, against competitors in the market. Uh, the third one, and of course that fits to also what I've observed in Germany, getting money, which is still an issue, of course, everywhere, but uh, maybe more particularly here. And then lastly, the, the fourth one is more about cash flow and, uh, and reserving uh, liquidity. Um, and one thing that is interesting, I think that in my opinion, could easily or easier be solved is the accelerated growth part, where I think maybe the ecosystem in Germany also is quite resistant against connecting startups and and the corporates in Germany more efficiently. Um, maybe also users are more resilient to try out new things compared to the US. Um, so that's something that I found very interesting. And I wonder 
is that something also now you being in, in Germany now, but you have lived in, in San Francisco for a while, do you think kind of accelerating growth or finding users and finding customers is easier in the US than in Germany? Is that something that you have observed? I mean, depending on the specific area that you're in, it's definitely easier. But I think for startups all over the world, accelerating growth and getting new users and customers probably among the number one or two problems, right? Because it's basically what you have to do as a startup, grow quickly, get more customers, make more money. So I I think that's a very reasonable yep. assumption that it's the same in other countries. But I think especially not, not only in B2B and B2C as well, but also in B2B companies are more likely to partner with a startup in the US than in Germany, I think. And one reason for that is that there are also just b more big tech companies in uh, in the US that have been startups not too long ago. So they're more used to how these processes work compared to Europe or Germany, for instance, where most of your potential bigger customers are all like traditional industry veterans and not necessarily startups that have just like crossed the thousand Uh, employee mark or something like that. So I think that's a very important distinction. Um, maybe, do you have another comment on that or shall I continue with the other stats? No, go ahead. I think I, I just wanted to understand your perspective there because I think that's, of course, uh, what was the most relevant one defined by the founders themselves. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So one aspect that really confused me a bit and that's also why I said the definition of startup is a bit muddy so they say there are zebras and unicorns in in their definition of how they look at it and unicorns are the ones who want hyper growth exponential growth potentially I don't know IPO at some point and then the zebras are the companies who want to scale a bit more linearly who don't necessarily want to use external financing and who also don't really want to scale too quickly and i just think that zebras at least in my definition are not necessarily startups right i mean you can you can found companies that are not necessarily startups because for me one very important characteristic of a startup is the potential to grow extremely quickly and also the ambition to grow extremely quickly and there's also how Startups have always been defined at YC, for example, or when I talk to people in, in the Valley, how they see it. So I think there's a bit of a difficult differentiation in here between just young companies and startups. So I think that's that's a bit of a problem. Also, if you look at uh, some of the other points, for example, they asked the companies if they ever think about exits. And apparently 41% of the companies here don't want an exit, at least are not targeting an exit. And by definition, an IPO is also an exit, right? So if 40% or like M&A, like, like almost any startup or most startups that I know, like in the startup definition of hypergrowth, want an exit at some point, right? And then also what you, what you see is that many of the startups outside of the big startup hubs like Berlin, etc., don't target an exit. So for example, in Berlin, 75% and in Munich, 72% of companies that are that were surveyed here um, are working towards an exit and want higher revenue because of it. And then in lower hubs on the on the tier list, uh, like uh, in the 
Rhein-Ruhr, it's called, they are only 40% are targeting an exit. And I think that just shows that this survey doesn't necessarily reflect the startup scene. So to some degree it does, but it, it's a bit difficult to differentiate between startups and the young companies here. And then the other thing that I think is supporting my hypothesis, hypothesis is uh, the following. Let's see where it was. It was about financing and how they got their financing and how and how they wanted their financing. And uh, yeah, here it is. So basically they were asked what their preferred financing method was. And then 40%, only 40% said that VC capital was their preferred financing method and only 18% of the surveyed entrepreneurs said that they had used uh, venture capital before. And a bigger um, a bigger share of people actually said that they would like to use governmental uh, funding, which is nice because it's often free, right? 50% apparently like government funding, but also 16% of people like bank loans and 15% have used bank loans. And most startups I know haven't used bank loans. Um, that's just some like weird, like if you dive a bit deeper uh, analysis, uh, the way I'm a bit skeptical of some of the findings, if you look at them too closely. That's why I say the general gist is super interesting, but I don't, I wouldn't see it as a scientific study. And now I've talked a lot. Maybe you can just say whether I'm talking bullshit or whether that makes sense to you. No, I, I think totally valid points. I was just questioning the fact that whether it's the, let's say, the author that has done maybe um, uh, not the best job of defining what a startup is or whether it's a just a reality check on how the startup ecosystem is being viewed upon in Germany, because I think um, maybe German founders that would call themselves startups or would call themselves uh, founders that are building startups, maybe they see a startup in a different eye than a US founder would see it as. Because I think, um, I, 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 of course, we don't know, but I think the people that were specifically targeted with this audience were founders or at least people that were in the startup ecosystem. So I would imagine that people are... Are quite honest about their answers and maybe it's just a different view of how german founders look at what a startup is compared to and how, how startups raise money compared to us um, founders maybe that's just a reality check that there are still some very very big differences that you can see in these two markets and i don't want to say it's too big it's bad or it's good but i think it's definitely something that you could dig deeper and find out whether um or what kind of category was interviewed for for this specific uh, article or analysis? Yeah, I think they just send it out to lots and lots of people, right? And uh, I mean, it, the Association for German Startups knows very well, like how, like the startup in the sense that I defined it earlier, mm. how, how the differentiation of that to like a more like a, to a different company or just a young company is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the head of that is Christian Miele, who is a like fairly famous German VC. He he knows very well how, how all of these things work. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's not necessarily a mistake, right? Then they mention it indirectly in the in the survey and monitor as well. Mm. I just think that it might, like one, okay, my biggest problem with uh, these kinds of reports is that some people, just use it as gospel and basically as true 
as true depictions of how the overall ecosystem thinks. Yeah, I agree. And I think you have to be very careful when you analyze the findings. And I think the authors of this survey or study or report or however you want to call it, they would be the first ones to admit that you have to be very careful in how you interpret it. Yep. And that's also some, that's just something that I wanted to mention. And I think one of the interesting things is, for example, one very funny thing that I, meant, uh, I saw is that many university professors or deans of companies that were mentioned in the top 10 um, list of um, like founder shares. So they, basically the survey asked where you studied hmm. and then they ranked the universities and had a percentage of respondents who studied at a specific university. And then some of the deans or professors just said, hey, we were ranked second from the German startup monitor, which is not <laughs> what this which is not what the report said. Not at all. And it actually mentions it very specifically in the report. So I don't know if these professors just didn't read it, whether they don't know how statistics works, which is very bad if you're a professor, or whether they just don't care and just want to use it for their advantage. But it, it was a, that was a bit weird to me. And I always, like, one of my pet peeves is people who misinterpret or actively or knowingly misinterpret statistics. I, I really, really dislike that. Yeah, good point. And, and it's good that you mentioned it again because I think uh, it's a general probably statement of uh, information like informations like these ones need to always be reflected in the context of how it should be used uh, going forward. So I think that's it's good that you mentioned it, which maybe also brings us to the to the other part that we wanted to touch upon. And maybe this is today a more analytical podcast where we go through the kind of um, to from to the analysis of of certain companies looking at certain trends and 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 uh, and, and different perspectives on, for example, now uh, enterprise software because that's something that we... before we do that, can I can I mention one more thing of the report that was very interesting to me? Sure, sure, sure. So. Uh, from the top 10 university list, I I think nine of them were very obvious to me. And for nine of them, I was thinking, okay, that makes sense. But one of them was actually surprising to me, and it's University of Bremen. Mm. Because I don't think that I know any founder who studied there, at least not off the top of my head. But all the other ones were like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But this one really stood out to me. So I need to dive a bit deeper into the ecosystem in, in Bremen, apparently, because I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I mean, in, you, in Bremen, you have, I think, all the space, uh, big space companies, big space associations. So maybe that's something that has been... Interesting. Uh, okay. So that, yeah, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely dig into that. Yeah, you should. I know I know that I think the local space association is based in, in uh, or is partly based in Bremen, and they produce certain rockets in Bremen as well. So that's something that I know, at least, which might be a reason. Okay. That, that's nice. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, just wanted to mention that because I found it very interesting. Sure. Um, uh, one other part that we wanted to touch upon is uh, enterprise software because, of course, lots of founders are dealing with enterprise customers and might be interested in understanding what happens in the enterprise software market. I'm also part of, of the industry, more or less, so, of course, it's fascinating to me. And there was a, um, a study done by Workbench, which is a venture capital uh, fund in the US, um, which also focuses on different startups, um, I think mostly in uh, Series A upwards um, 
and uh, invest in them in different ways. But uh, they have done, I think, a great job of analyzing the existing enterprise software market and try to understand how the current situation differs from uh, the economical crisis in 2001 and 2008 or 2009, and how that relates to the um, how that relates to the VC funding being done in the US. And um, we wanted to go through a couple of of, of kind of statements and and. Uh, uh, yeah, numbers that they have configured uh, in their analysis. And one part is that um, the IPO numbers, which uh, I think Mike has correctly said earlier, is also one part of the exit. They have actually not recovered to um, to pre-recession numbers. Um, so before uh, 2008, 2009, uh, there were actually 76 IPOs in, that, in, in 2007, in that specific year, right before the crisis hit. And you're talking about enterprise software companies who IPO, right? Right, enterprise software companies that IPO. Okay, in, just in wanted the, to clarify. Yeah, that's it's a good point. Thanks. Um, in the US, and, and, and looking at how that has shifted after um, after the crisis, you see that the numbers have actually still declined. So in, in 2019, so last year, we had 34 IPOs of enterprise software companies um, in the US compared to 76 before the 2008 crisis. So the numbers have never really picked up anymore from uh, the pre-recession times before the crisis in, in 2008, 2009, which is interesting. Uh, I wonder where that comes from, whether kind of entrepreneurs think about IPOs differently. There are some founders that criticize IPOs in a way that their um, interest can get drawn to the shareholders instead of the company's strategy goals, et cetera, et cetera. So there might be reasons for that. Yeah, public markets can be very annoying. Right, right. Um, and, and, and of course, some companies do it quite well with Amazon and Facebook that are still more or less controlling the strategy, but some others are being abused more or less by the shareholders. Uh, uh, and, and they're not really the, the actual, yeah, the actual st strategists anymore of how, where the company goes, in my opinion. And that's, I think, maybe why people have kind of stopped only looking for the IPO at the end of the day. Or what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I have a couple of different thoughts on that. And I think there are, like, you always need some time to mature to an IPO, obviously, right? And the question is, when did these companies after the recession start? Because I think the recession, I think we talked about that before, the recession actually was the building ground for a lot of very impressive startups like Airbnb, for example. But I also think that especially for enterprise software. And that's just an assumption that I have that maybe the recession was actually even like even more difficult to navigate than for other companies because recessions, especially the, the financial crisis, just hit large companies often fairly hard. And there were a lot of jobs lost. So it might have been just very, very difficult to sell anything to these large corporates mm. uh, back in the day. And maybe the recovery just took a bit longer. I don't know. And maybe we will see some great enterprise IPOs very soon. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's my like one first thought that I had. And then the other, uh, the other thought that I had is that I actually know a lot of people who are really, really bullish on enterprise tech right now, but rather in the C to B stage. So I, I, I have a lot of like a lot of very reputable sources who say that enterprise tech is a crazy, crazy, interesting uh, sector for the next, I don't know, 10 years. Maybe it's coming back. I don't know. Which, which I mean, uh, and, and, and you totally hit the point, right? I mean, the, the study also found out that 
um, even though we have COVID and there are some certain restrictions on the VC market in the US, the enterprise software market still outpaced all the other industries by far. Um, so information technology topics and especially enterprise software companies um, were not just funded more, uh, but also were, um, were deeply integrated into the strategy of, uh, of their customers uh, much more than and then other industries. And there's a, an interesting um, kind of study on that because I think what, what they have analyzed is that 60% of the organizations are actually increasing software spending in 2020 versus their original 2020 plan before COVID. Um, and there was kind of a different, there was like different statistics about it. But what I found very impressive is that um, 11% of uh, the people that were interviewed for this specific enterprise uh, analysis, eleven um, percent are um, spending uh, or or have a, an increase of twenty one percent and above that um, to spend in, uh, in 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 enterprise software compared to what they have originally planned in the budget at at uh, end of nineteen uh, and beginning of twenty twenty. So you see that there's a big pickup of customers that actually now because of COVID invest much, much more than they had originally planned, which I think is very interesting when you look at the enterprise market and the opportunity there. So 21% increase in spending versus the original budget. Um, yeah, I mean, COVID basically forced them to, right? Right. Yeah. But I, I still, I still didn't feel that it was that much actually that. Um, oh, no, no. I, I didn't, I didn't want to say that it's unsurpri like unsurprising or like not a significant development. I just say like COVID just accelerated all of that a lot and that's very good for the market right agreed agreed and you see and you see the same thing happening on the vc funding side because i was also quite impressed that um even though uh, the 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 kind of the the number of deals has decreased massively from i think it was a, a thousand deals um in by quarter in uh, in q4 19 um so in between October and December, uh, VCs invested um, into a thousand companies, um, roughly, um, with a deal volume of, of, I think, 25 billion in total. And now uh, looking at Q2 2020, uh, it's much, much lower. So the number has decreased from a thousand deals to, yeah, I think 730, 720 deals uh, per quarter. But the deal volume has still almost stayed the same um, from being at at the at the amount of 25 billion in Q4 19 to now uh, I think it's 22 23 billion um, in Q2 2020, which just means that VCs have invested in less companies, but in, have invested more money into the companies they invested into. And I think that's also something that we projected uh, four or five months ago. But I think now looking at the numbers, it's quite interesting that this is actually reality. Yeah, I think. That, yeah, that also makes a lot of sense. One thing that's very interesting in general is just that more, I mean, especially in, in recessions, it makes sense to focus on the more proven winners, right? If you think that someone is like really out executing the rest and just giving them more money and increasing the stake that you can actually get makes sense. Mm. So yeah, that, that's that's great. By the way, I really love their website. Like Workbench, the the VC who is uh, who has created the uh, the study, uh, they have a very interesting uh, headline which is called "Great Things Happen at the Intersection of Suits and Hoodies," and I think that that describes 
that describes enterprise software or enterprise tech startups very perfectly. I, I would give it an A plus. I think that's it's it's really good, and they have a very focused website just on go to market with fortune 500 companies which is basically the way to go if you want to do enterprise in the us so yeah i i, I like them i've i haven't heard of them because i'm personally not active in the enterprise scene at least not myself that much but they seem pretty cool i i like their vibes and i like their reports we, we put all the reports in the show notes anyway so people can kind of keep up with um what we've talked about and maybe dig deeper if they are interested in, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you would like to mention about the enterprise uh, tech report? Because if not, I would say one last thing about enterprise tech on my end and then I'm I'm happy to move on. No, let's, uh, nothing from my side. So uh, you can, yeah, you have the stage now, go ahead. <laughs> okay, two things. One, enterprise tech can be a real pain like a real, real, real pain because the sales cycles are so extremely long and many, especially first-time founders who don't know enterprise, just totally underestimate how many hurdles you have to overcome to actually sign a deal with a large company because they are usually slow. They have a lot of bureaucracy. They have a lot of norms that you have to fulfill, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So don't underestimate sales cycles if you ever go into enterprise tech. Yeah. But on the end, then also regulation or like compliance can be very, very, very difficult. And they often use legacy software. So integrating is difficult. But if you actually get the deal, like the first deal or the second deal or deals in general, then it is a very, very nice thing to be an enterprise tech company because they just pay huge sums of money. So as an enterprise tech company, you need one customer where other companies need a thousand, depending on what you're offering, obviously. So yeah, as, as everything in life said, it has advantages and disadvantages. But mm -hmm. whenever I hear about like a 12-month sales cycle, I get a bit, I don't know, itchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shaky. <laughs> no, I agree. And I, but as, nevertheless, I mean, in enterprise sales, as you mentioned, there are different kind of uh, categories. And uh, there's a great VC that is, I think, called the Angel VC in uh, in uh, in Berlin, Christoph Jans, who's who's a partner at Point uh, Nine Capital, which is a famous uh, venture capital fund in Berlin. Yeah, he's, he's he, Yeah, he's. I mean, he's definitely well known in the SaaS industry. But he has outlined how you can, when you are a startup and you are you have a, a certain problem that you want to solve, and you have a certain market and you define your go-to market, that you need to categorize yourself in a certain bucket to understand how many customers you need with the average uh, volume and deal size that you want to accomplish with each of these customers to be a more or less a, a, a company that has a revenue of 100 million dollars uh, per year uh, AR. So that's something that. Uh, so annual recurring revenue. So that's something that he has outlined quite uh, amazingly. And we can put that in the show notes if people are interested in kind of looking for these categories. Um, it's, I think, called the elephant versus mouse SaaS game or something. And he describes it quite nicely. I can put it in the show notes. Yeah, there's always this like relevant equation of, I mean, 10, 10 million dollar deals or lots and lots and lots of 10 dollar deals right right, right. that's uh, that's the game you can play but yeah uh, transitioning away from that and not talking about reports anymore we have a couple of other things that we wanted to mention uh, one of them is a very interesting uh, tweet storm that I read recently 
from someone who's very deep in the fintech scene. And basically what he's at the, the tweet storm is about uh, distribution strategy. And one interesting thought that he formulated that I had in my mind for some time, but couldn't really quite get to the point is that a high contribution margin. So if you, uh, if you have a, a high different for those who don't know what it is, if you have a high like difference between your revenue and the first level of costs, that helps you a lot in actually choosing the right market uh, marketing channels. Hmm. And how he argued is that if you have uh, a contribution margin of uh, with a specific customer or like deal of 250 bucks a year, then and uh, versus you have, I don't know, maybe 2000 bucks a year, then for the deals or customers where you make 2000 bucks, you can actually spend way more money on marketing, right? So if you have a significant contribution margin advantage compared to your competition, so if you have way lower costs or can charge way more, this does not only enable you to make more money, this also helps you to use additional marketing channels that are inefficient for other people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very interesting way of thinking about marketing and distribution. If you think about it a bit more quantitatively and how you can achieve advantages by just having higher margins than your competition. Interesting. Where did you find that? Was that on? Uh, on Twitter. I, I will share the link later. And then also two other things that he mentioned that uh, are more a bit more well-known. They're, they're basically two ways of reaching customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he calls it intercepting the signal or... Uh, I think raising awareness mm -hmm. and intercepting the signal is basically if you do search marketing uh, like SEO or SEM if someone is literally like if you're a, I don't know a travel company and someone is literally searching for flights to Miami then it obviously makes sense to try to score very highly uh, on Google and just intercept the signal that, that someone is actually interested in buying something. Mm -hmm. So that's one strategy of looking at, at channels and SEO is probably the or SEO and SEM is probably the most relevant one. And then the other one, raising awareness is a bit more indirect. There's a lot about content, maybe social media. So a lot of things that are a bit more indirect and that give you the ability to educate your customer maybe about your product and maybe get them to a purchase after doing that at some point. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I've never taken that perspective on, 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 on mixing both parts in, in that way. Yeah. How, how I usually look at it is um, intent-based uh, marketing and profile-based marketing. That's how I knew it. But intercepting the signal is a very nice analogy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I've also never heard that before. Cool. Yeah. And I think next thing is the book of the week. And uh, before we talk about the, the book of the week, I want to give a quick introduction. I, I recently read a great article about uh, fat tail events. And what that means for everyone who remembers statistics, or maybe for those who don't have statistics, usually when you talk about distribution curves, then you talk about the tail ends of the curve. So how you can imagine it is that usually many distributions are have more mass in the middle of the distribution. So where more like the norm of the people is, the average, there's usually more mass. And then 
the, the further you go outside, the further you diverge from the average, usually the tails, that's how it's called, uh, become a lower chance or just have lower people. So to give you an example, let's use uh, a very easy one. Let's use height. Yeah, um, the there's a higher chance that someone is around the average height. Let's say, I don't even know, it depends on the country, but let's say the average height for a man is like 1 meter 80s. We are European, so we don't use the American system here. And then it's a higher chance that you are 182, maybe, than that you're two meters in two. Mm. And then obviously there are physical limitations, blah, blah, blah. But I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail. So basically, uh, the fat tail just describes that there's a high likelihood of outlier events or a higher likelihood than you might expect. Mm. The interesting effect of that is that the problem with fat tail events is that there is generally still a low likelihood that any of these events will happen. However, when there's a high likelihood or a higher likelihood than you might think that any of those, like that one of those events will happen, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe fat tail event number one is unlikely to happen and fat tail event number 30,002 is unlikely to happen. But one of those will happen at some point. And this reminded me when I read that the, uh, about the book Black Swan from uh, Taleb, who uh, probably many of you have heard of it. And it's a very good book. And in this book, he actually talks about these black swans, which is basically very unlikely events that have very high impact. And I think it's a very good book to understand this thought process and the whole theory behind it. And it's a very interesting way of thinking it, uh, about it. So I'm definitely recommending to read it. And then one other thing that I read in the article is the the interesting thing or another interesting thing about these fat tail events is that they are often very significant. Let's use COVID. COVID is an event that, I mean, for many people, for many years, people have warned about the potential for like a pandemic, but there are also other risks that could have happened. And a very interesting thing that I haven't thought about in that instance is a second order tail event. So we talked about second order events already, right, on this podcast. For those who don't know or don't remember or didn't listen to that one, a second order consequence is something that was caused by a first order event. So for example, <laughs> uh, let's assume that, okay, yeah, that's, that's actually a good idea. Let's assume that a house is burning and the house is burning because someone kicked over um, like uh, something else that was burning. And then the, the, the kicking of the first thing is the first order event. And then the house starting to burn is the second order event. So maybe the first one, the first object broke, right? So that's the first order event. It's bad. But because it broke and like the fire got out, I don't even know what kind of uh, thing that would be, but just bear with me, uh, the, the house that would be burning is the second order event. And the interesting thing is combining the fat tail or these tail events with second order consequences is a very interesting thing that I never thought about before. Because if you have these very improbable but very significant events like COVID as a first order event, then the second order tail events can be extremely significant, right? Because COVID is so prevalent and such a significant event that many other very improbable events only occur because this this specific event occurs and that makes forecasting the future super super difficult and that's basically a long way of talking a lot about these things but i i think it's just a very interesting way of thinking about these things in combination
Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, uh, and especially looking into the future when potentially different pandemics can hit uh, us as a society and uh, all these different effects and the events that come out of it are more or less caused by external factors and not by us as humans uh, doing a lot of things wrong. So I think that's something that also needs to be put into account then. Okay. And uh, yeah, so Black Swan, we will link it in the show notes. Uh, you should read that. And since both of us are actually on a tight schedule, let's do the last two things really quick. You had a person of the week that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, we've never had a person of the week, I think. Um, I think we have two I have two people uh, of the week. One is... Um, two at once? Now you're now you're treating us. Over-delivering, over right. I mean, <laughs> one is actually a former guest of our podcast, Christian, uh, Christian Bush. Um, he has, for everybody that wants to check him out, he has been featured on different occasions now from Harvard Business Review to Financial Times by Arianna Huffington and different other ones because of his great work with um, the serendipitous mindset uh, of his new book, um, which is yeah, which is his new book. And we interviewed him on the, on the first episode. So everybody that hasn't listened yet um, should definitely do so. He's been um, enormously uh, yeah, effective with everything that is related to PR, but he also has done a great job uh, writing a great book and uh, I think that's deservable. And uh, the second person that I wanted to mention is Dave Gerhardt. Um, Dave and then G-E-R-H-A-R-D-T. Um, he's a B2B marketing guy, former VP marketing of Drift, which is also an enterprise company and now CMO uh, at Privy. And he actually hosts a podcast about marketing, um, but also has very, very precise um statements on LinkedIn uh, about how marketing works. So I could definitely recommend that for everybody that's interested in getting to more and more about uh, B2B enterprise marketing, especially, especially, and he, it's very interesting just to follow him and learn more about his perspectives. Yeah. And uh, the episode with Christian was, I think, episode 15. So you can take a listen to that. And I, I don't want to like call that there's any like direct causation, but there's definitely correlation that he was on our podcast and then like a week or two <laughs> afterwards the international book launch happened and then lots and lots of PR followed. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there. No, like, <laughs> I think it was a very, it was a great conversation and I really, I love to see how much uh, attention he's getting for, for the concept that he uh, is pushing out into the world, which is a concept we like a lot because That's why we use it also for our name of the podcast, right? Good point, yeah. Okay, and then uh, to close it all off, I'm actually quoting Taleb. Um, and he has a very, very good quote that uh, goes as follows. Prediction, not narration, is the real test of our understanding of the world. And I think this is one mm. of the most important con concepts for people to understand if they look at the media and everything else that's out there because hindsight explanations are not really the thing that help you to really understand the world. There's this thing called hindsight bias, right? There is the, there's actually the great character of Captain Obvious <laughs> in South Park that, uh, for, for those who, who don't know, just always arrives after the disaster and then says what went wrong, uh, just to signify that in hindsight, everything seems easier. And mm. the predictive value of your theory, so how much it can explain about the future and how much it can explain about what happens next, that is actually the value of a theory. Mm. And that actually shows how smart you are about a specific topic. Because if you only look at things in hindsight and explain them afterwards, that's just 
I don't know, retrofitting things. Mm. But if you then cannot forecast the future, that means that you don't know the topic that well. And this is my biggest problem that I have with all these stock gurus that appear on TV and tell you, okay, this is why this stock, like, I don't know, like had a 2% decrease or this is why this stock went up 7%. But then you look at their own forecasts and 90% of them, maybe not 90, but most of them are wrong. And I'm always getting so annoyed when people quote these people and tell me, yeah, well, here, he explains it really well. And then the next time he can't really predict the next thing. That's only one of these instances. It, it appears in many different areas. But I think to repeat it, predictive value of your theory is what's important, not that you narrate something afterwards. Cool. Thanks for sharing, Mike. I'll just moderate us uh, out of this episode. It was a pleasure. And I actually like this one. We we talked a bit <laughs> we talked a bit longer than expected as as almost always and I'm very happy to have some guests on the podcast again very soon and yeah I think to to just close off the discussion on the thought the the, the thing I talked about is also one of the core concept of skeptical thinking and rationality and it's just a very good tool to have in your tool set if you want to become a more rational thinker. So you should think about that a bit. And with that, I hope that you have a good rest of your day and don't forget to subscribe or whatever works best for you to take a listen to the next episode and uh, you hear us soon. Hopefully. Give us a comment, give, it, give us a comment in, uh, on Apple or wherever you think it's appropriate. So um, thanks, Mike. And uh, thanks for everybody listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>